Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 20th, 2023. A few weeks ago, we did a very interesting show with Prudence Pfeiffer. Uh, she works at... Uh, uh, at MoMA in New York City, and she has a book called Coenty's Slip, a book about uh, a New York street that she believes changed American art forever. In a sense, it brought modern art to New York, or maybe not modern art, maybe a certain kind of modern art. Uh, and we're following up, in a sense, on that book, although what we're about to discuss is actually took place before Coenty's Slip. Uh, with my guest today, uh, Hugh Aking. He is the author of Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. The book came out last year, and it's about to come out in paperback. It got great reviews, uh, and it's a fascinating story. Hugh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. What do you think Picasso would think of paperback books versus hardback books? Well, I, I don't know if he thought much of hardbacks, actually. Apparently, he was very into, you know, comic books, uh, you know, stacks of old. Um, uh, I think I think paperbacks would have, would have been his thing. I mean, you, you would walk into his studio and there would be, you know, 30 years of detritus uh, and cigarettes uh, on the floor. So, um, but um, he was a reader and, you know, a lot of his friends were poets. He knew many, many writers. In some ways, he was more close to the literary world than fellow artists uh, who often had all these, you know, rivalries and, 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 and complicated relationships with. He's a controversial fellow, not so much perhaps as an artist these days, but certainly as a human being. What do you think he'd think of your book? Uh, he probably wouldn't even acknowledge it, you know. Um, <laughs> Why? Alfred Barr, the greatest uh, Picasso man of the 20th century, you know, builds a whole museum basically around Picasso, an entire canon of modern art, uh, you know, writes this definitive study of Picasso uh, right after the war. It comes out in 1946. And then he goes and sees Picasso in the south of France and Picasso says, oh, you did a really nice Matisse book and doesn't mention that. <laughs> um, um, anyway, uh, no, but, but, I, but, but I like to think he would have read it and, 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 and silently uh, appreciated it. Um, appreciated it or loved it or a bit of both. <laughs> um, in contrast with Prudence, who I'm sure you know, or you, I'm sure you know her work at least, you're not a professional art man. You actually, I think your day job is at what, Foreign Affairs or Foreign Policy magazine? Foreign Affairs, yeah. Foreign Affairs. How, how did you get to this book as, as someone who uh, works in that area? What particularly interested you? Have you always been a big Picasso man, a fan? Well, well, well. Um, uh, modern art is all about foreign affairs. <laughs> um, Certainly for Picasso, right? <laughs> um, but, but also in the also in the geopolitical sense. I mean, there's a huge 
political story as well that I that I'm 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 trying to tell um, in in this book, and uh, I think you can't extricate the the art from the politics of the time. I mean, the great battles of the 20th century, uh, democracy and fascism and communism, um, that's all there. And Picasso's at the center of that. And um, so so that's one thing, uh, you know, I, I think that there's less of a, a, a kind of separation of, of these fields than, or, or, or there shouldn't be uh, in my view. Um, but no, I, I've been writing about museums and art for years um, as a journalist and um, uh, sometime historian. So I, I come at it just from maybe a different angle than uh, a museum curator. You wrote an interesting piece in The Atlantic, which I think was borrowed in part from the book about how, speaking of politics, his great anti-war mural, uh, Guernica, flopped. Tell me a little bit about this work of art, when it flopped, and then the dates in, in terms of when he came to America. Yeah, no, I mean, this is just one of, of so many instances where um, in the in the course of writing the book, I discovered that so much of what we thought we know, we thought we knew is wrong. Um, you know, um, <laughs> the United States was never a leader in modern art. It was a backwater. Um, Picasso was a failure for decades before he succeeded. And the story of, you know, his arguably best known work, Guernica, um, a lot of what we sort of, the mythology around it is, is also wrong. So, um, you know, it, it springs onto the world and there's a sense of, oh, it's this great um, political statement, his first big political painting uh, against the Spanish Civil War, against the, the, the Franco, um, the brutal Franco regime. Uh, but it's shown at the Paris Expo, and it, it's basically a flop. You know, no one no one pays attention to it in this in this huge uh, World's Fair that millions of people are in Paris. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Le Corbusier has this famous quote. He said, "You know, um, <laughs> just paraphrasing. Um, you know, no one saw it because they all had their backs turned. Um, it was so bad." And um, so it kind of fails, and it's really not until it comes to the United States two years later, um, as as the Spanish Spanish Civil War is over at that point. And well, by thirty nine, it comes. Yeah, it comes in in this, in May thirty nine. I mean, it comes to the U.S. literally when the war is ending in Spain. I mean, it's it's its original purpose is sort of um, over, and it, it has this kind of it fails again. It tours the United States. Um, you know, only a few hundred people see it. It's to raise money for Spanish refugees. Um, and then finally it comes to MoMA, which is having this huge Picasso show. And only then does it really kind of attain this um, kind of stature that it, it will later have as the kind of definitive 20th century political painting. Um, but it's full of contingency and all, like so many other parts of this story, so many things could have gone a different way. Um, you know, it could have been rolled up and if it had it not come to the United States, we might not know Guernica might be, might be that work that, you know, um, you know, a Miro that showed with Guernica in Paris in 1937 
was shipped back to Spain and then lost. So this could have uh, this could have happened to Guernica, but Guernica went to Picasso's studio instead because the, Span the, the Spanish Republicans, for whom it was made, disdained it so much they didnn't want it. Um, they said, okay, just take it back. You know, uh, they had commissioned it. Um, so uh, it's a very interesting story and I think tells us a lot about sort of, you know, how contingent um, th this is. Um, and, and it's a... In an odd way, it's appropriate because contingency and Picasso's art seem to go together. It's almost reassuring to me that everyone, to borrow your, your language, turned their back on Picasso or his work, at least at first. Isn't that reassuring? Doesn't that remind us that it takes a while for, I you know, I be careful about using the phrase great art, but if there is a great artist, it's probably Picasso. It's not obvious, it's not immediate. No, not at all. I mean, I mean, the, the, the really, the, the great, the, the kind of iconic Picasso paintings that we think of, you know, Demoiselle d'Avignon, another example, you know, everyone hated that. His, Picasso's friends hated that, you know, Georges Braque, you know, his fellow, fellow in arms uh, in Cubism sees Demoiselle for the first time. And he's like, this is like drinking gasoline. I mean, he just <laughs> hates it. Um, and it disappeared, you know, Picasso didn't show it. Um, you know, he kept it in his studio for many years. Um, it has a very belated story. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, we have to get back to what it was like to actually encounter this art that, that we, we sort of just accept as, kind of part of the firmament today. And it was, you know, in fact, not just radical, but kind of distasteful and, um, you know, in a, in a, at a time when images didn't circulate, we didn't have access to just endless images of, of everything around us. It was the shock of, of encountering something. So, you know, the great Russian collector, Sergei Shukin, when he saw Picasso, uh, at the first Cubist work, he said it was like, it was like um, swallowing broken glass. Um, yeah, it's the shock of the new. It's the shock of the new, but it's also a, a sense of rupture that all the kind of values, there, there's a much more of a sense of, of, a, of a kind of existing value. A breakage, which is what the art's about anyway. So it's double, doubly shocking or doubly, doubly like eating broken glass or, or drinking gasoline. This wasn't that unusual, though, Hugh, was it? I mean, we all know the story of everyone walking out on Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. This was, in some senses, a tradition for the avant-garde in Europe. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, but, it, but it's kind of both ways. I mean, we had our own Rite of Spring, which was the Armory Show in 1913, which is also kind of this you know in 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 the kind of tradition it's this heroic moment when you know overnight um it, 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 sort of by shock and awe um all this modern art arrives in the united states and yeah it, people are horrified but it's this turning point and from that point on the united states is modern and it's new york is the center of kind of modern art. I mean, that's kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a caricature, but that's kind of the standard view. And what I, what I discovered was, in fact, the Armory show was in its own way, kind of a flop. 
you know, um, it, it, it created a huge amount of attention, but it was also, it, the whole purpose of it was to sell this new art, to, to, to go straight to the consumer. You could buy anything from the show. And in fact, mm. hardly, hardly anybody bought from the show. Yeah, it's somewhat, somewhat, I don't know, ironic or chilling or some, something slightly troubling that you write about Picasso coming to America in 1939. And of course, in 1939, it was uh, Nazi troops arriving throughout the rest of Europe. Was America wasn't really preoccupied with that, though, in 1939. What happened back then to make them to 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 awake America. I mean, I'm sure it's not all Americans, but some Americans to Picasso's work, to Picasso's art. Yes, yeah, so, so Picasso didn't come to the. I mean, his, no, no, I understand his his work. Did, but. Yeah, but um, no, that's a great point. I mean, it, in 1939, it's it's this kind of disjuncture. You know, um, the United States is finally coming out of the depression. It's like the economy is picking up, and actually, the initial effect of the war is like, well we can sell more airplanes to the, to the, to, to the British and the French. Um, and so there was this big economic recovery, you know, Hollywood is booming. 1939 is one of the great years of Hollywood, um, you know, American culture. Um, it's not really a moment when Europe is sort of super high on the agenda. And it's interesting that there are two world's fairs in the United States in the summer of 1939. So weeks before the start of the war, you had the New York World's Fair, and you also have the Golden Gate Expo in uh, in the in San Francisco, yeah. and and these two expos are all about celebrating like world peace and you know America's new position in the world, and they have these pavilions. You know, uh, Mussolini sends over a bunch of um, um, you know Renaissance art for the first time to to to, to tour the United States, and and so there's there's a kind of um, uh, a, a, a belated awakening to the war and this all kind of cult, you know, comes to a head, um, you know, in the fall of 1939. And that's sort of precisely the, the sort of the, the climax of, of, of this story when, when, when the show, when the Picasso show is supposed to uh, take place. And this is all planned before the war. All this stuff has to get to the United States. You know, shipping lanes are suddenly shut down um as of september 1st and um you know um three musicians one of the great picasso paintings this is on a boat to uh buenos aires um and so all this all these paintings have to be kind of gathered at this at this you know geopolitical explosion and and safely brought to to the united states so um um, that's sort of that's sort of part of part of the the story. And was when when people began when people saw Guernica, um, the, the work was it interpreted as a statement against war, as an attack on fascism, as a comment on the Spanish Civil War, or just as art, modern art, whatever that means. Well, I, I think it was such an unapproachable work of art for, for so many. I mean, it's hard to, to kind of get back to what your, your sort of typical, inf even informed American viewer in 1939 would never have seen a lot of, uh, you know, sort of cubism forward. Um, and 
suddenly this not not just this astonishing political statement, but but much more so a, a kind of radical. You know, no one had done a mural on this scale using you know this kind of uh, you know complex um, kind of amalgam of of all these different parts of, of, of Picasso's sort of thought and work of, of the past quarter century. And so I, I, I think that the, the, the kind of war message is almost, almost in the background, especially in the United States. You know, the Spanish Civil War is, is, has come to a close. Uh, it does become this kind of searing statement against war itself. And I think that there's uh, a, a kind of effort on the part of, I mean, the way it's curated and presented in this great Picasso show in 1939, it's the kind of culmination. So you're kind of walked through all the different phases of Picasso's career, and then you come to this room and it's all by itself. And, and, and there it is. Uh, um, and meanwhile, um, Alfred Barr, I mean, this is the political angle of the whole story. You know, he has spent the previous decade making the argument that modern art is American and that, you know, this is, this is a man who, you know, he's probably the only American who witnessed totalitarianism in, uh, he witnessed Stalin come to power in, in the Soviet Union um, and then Hitler come to power. You know, he happens to be in Germany in the spring of 1933. And in the back of his mind, these are the, the two regimes that are against you know, modern art. And, and so America therefore has to be for modern art. And, and this becomes this great argument about freedom um, that he makes. And he makes the case that it's not this, you know, European, um, you know, kind of hothouse bohemian thing that, that Americans need to stay away from, but it's about freedom. It's about democracy. Um, and that, that was sort of an interesting, uh, you know, FDR at the you know end of, by the end of the 30s, uh, Franklin Roosevelt himself is giving a speech about the importance of modern art um, as kind of part of the arsenal of democracy. So um, it's an interesting kind of shift that has to take place. Yeah, and I want to talk more. We're going to take a short break here now. I'll talk more about Alfred Barr, FDR, the, the politics of modern art, the pretense of modern art, Picasso, of course. Uh, but I want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We'll be back in two seconds to talk more with Hugh Aching about uh, the remarkable story of, of, of when Picasso brought modern art, in a sense, literally and metaphorically to America. We'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more, libertiesjournal.com. You can also subscribe online to the excellent quarterly. We are speaking with 
Hugh Aiken, who is the author of Picasso's work, came out last year, wonderful book. Uh, it's just coming up in paperback next week. Uh, Hugh, before the break, you talked a little bit about somebody called Alfred Barr. I have to admit, I didn't know about him until I came across your book. Tell me about him and why he's so central in this narrative. Well, Alfred Barr was the, the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art. Um, but, but that's kind of the, the short of the story. Uh, I mean, the Museum of Modern Art was a thing that didn't exist. Uh, so there weren't any, there wasn't such a thing as a museum of art, uh, you know, the collected art of living artists, uh, let alone, you know, this new modern art in the United States. This is the era of the great, um, you know, historic museums like, like the Met and uh, the you know, Chicago Art Institute. They are kind of encyclopedic museums emulating the, the, the great art collections of Europe of the past, but also collecting antiquities from around the world. Um, and they collected what they called modern art, but they were thinking of like French academic painting, you know, Bouguereau and um, not, not, nothing really much forward from the mid 19th century. So, so the whole concept was new and there was no expertise. There was no, there was no, you know, there was that you, you couldn't go to, uh, you know, study modern art. Um, it was hard to, to get it, you know, in the United States, most of the, the great European modern artists were their work were, were in collections in Europe and you know there were you know a handful of collectors um and so there's this kid uh this kind of uh you know wunderkind who who comes along and he he is kind of as so many of the characters in the story kind of an outsider um you know uh he he you know he's a preacher's son but he he you know scholarship kid to to Princeton and uh he's just kind of wild about art and uh, he, he quickly decides that there's, you know, there's nothing, you know, he has this, this famous thing, he's applying for a graduate school and he writes, um, you know, I really don't think the, the Quattrocento, you know, Italian Renaissance art has any, you know, holds a candle to, <laughs> to modern art. And he didn't get any funding, but um, so he's this sort of, solitary figure in the 20s and he's picked by these three society women in New York to to run this museum they said we need it we need to have a museum New York is behind uh, it's behind the rest of the world by by the late 20s you know every city in Europe has a modern art museum where you where where is it in the United States you know um, so he's chosen at this incredibly young age to run this museum and uh, his other task is to build an actual collection. And that takes years and years because, you know, for one thing, there's no money, but also there's no agreement on, you know, who are the artists, who, who should we be collecting and how radical could they be? You know, even these well-meaning founders, you know, we're not very far into to cubism. Um, so um, it took this kind of, incredible effort and he you know the other fascinating thing about Alfred Barr is he's fascinated by military history and he's a kind of he thinks in military terms which is very interesting um in the 30s you know he's on these campaign he describes his 
every summer he and and Marga, his wife, go to go to Paris and travel around Europe on their their latest campaign. And they're gonna, you know, this year they're gonna do, um, you know, Matisse, and then then it's Picasso, and um, you know, the, the Cubists, and then the Surrealists, and and the end. Um, then it's actually a campaign also for American uh, legitimacy. Um, and so he's this extraordinary figure, which is a kind who, who forms kind of a counterpoint to Picasso um, um, throughout this story. Uh, it's not clear that they ever became very warm friends, which is also interesting. One president in the 20s said that the uh, the business of America is business. And of course, America in, in the 30s and 20s was the, the engine of global capitalism of the marketplace. Uh, we did a show last year with Charles Delheim. I'm sure you're familiar with his book on uh, belonging and betrayal, how Jews made the art world modern. It's a book about the, the modern art world and the business of the art world. Were there speculators, business people who recognized in the 30s, if not necessarily with Picasso himself, but with quote-unquote modern art, that there were massive fortunes to be made if you, if you bought the right paintings at the right time? It's so, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that this, is, again, is one of the things that I feel, feel like the mythology has, has distorted the story so, I mean, it was one of the th results of Alfred Barr's success that he fought for years against these powerful dealers who essentially controlled the modern art market. And, uh, you know, museum, they didn't really compete with museums because museums didn't really have the stature. I mean, the big, it was kind of like it is today. I mean, you know, you want to see really a big uh, sort of very cutting edge show, you would go to, you know, one of the big New York galleries more than any, any of the museums because they, they, you know, they, they do big shows, they have curators, they have catalogs. That's how it was in the 20s. These big uh, dealers in Paris, where you could make a lot of money off of modern art, they did, you know, immaculate shows with, you know, the, the, the best art historian in France would, would do, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec um, uh, curated Toulouse-Lautrec show for the Rosenberg Gallery. Um, but there wasn't any sort of museum competition because they just weren't in the game in the same way. We've kind of come back to that point um, today. But so there's a huge amount of money in it. But, but the sort of the, the paradox is that in the United States, there was very little value placed on this new art because it didn't have this pedigree. And I think there's a lot of insecurity there that, you know, the big, the sort of titanic figures of the period, you know, the JP Morgans, the, 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 the William Clay Fricks, Isabella Stewart Gardner at the turn of the century, the, the whole idea was appropriating the kind of European past, you know, and they, they, mm. it, it, the irony. So, so the, the United States is this rising new world power but it needed all this sort of old art to to legitimate to 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 for legitimacy. Whereas, you know, Germany or these old sort of old world countries, Germany, Russia, Soviet, even before the end of um, the czarist era, you have these you know very avant garde collections being formed in Moscow. Um, they weren't concerned about that. You know, they didn't need kind of historic legitimacy. Um, 
I'm guessing, uh, I'm pretty sure that Picasso deeply offended the Nazis. I'm, I'm sure he offended the Stalinists as well. I'm sure that Picasso's work wasn't available in Moscow in the 30s or, 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 or Berlin in the 1930s. Did he offend people here, given the culture wars that existed in, as much in the, the 1930s as they do in the 2020s? The isolationists, people hostile to American association with Europe, people hostile to modernity, people hostile to uh, creative people of other ethnicities and sexualities? Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and that's, that's kind of what, what, what Barr is fighting against throughout the 30s, and especially in the 30s. There is this kind of isolationism, but there's also this kind of nativism. Um, and the, the, the art that is really being pushed, including by the Roosevelt administration, um, which is interesting, um, uh, you know, we think of the, the, the WPA, you know, Roosevelt employing all these American artists to paint murals in public buildings um, during the, at the height of the depression. But, but that was also part of this whole kind of American art. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to support all these great kind of native talent um, that had nothing to do with these new European art movements. These were, this was going to be our new, you know, our American homegrown, um, um, you know, and, and it, it, the, the kind of muralist style, Thomas Hart Benton, uh, these, these kind of viral figures who painted, um, you know, people, um, real people doing, you know, American uh, quotidian life. And uh, there was a real effort to kind of portray, you know, the whole Picasso thing in, in Paris as kind of this crackpot, decadent, um, deviant, um, um, and that, that's the other thing that I think is really, was, was for me, one of the more astonishing discoveries. So we think of the, the kind of the Nazi idea of, um, um, kind of the, the effort to portray modern art as, as this kind of deviancy that, um, you know, has to be purged from all these German museums that, that this whole degenerate, they, this idea of degenerate art and showing the public, this, this, these are horrors that you have to destroy. Actually, all of that comes from the United States. You go back a generation in the, in the, around the time of the Armory show in, this, in, the, in the teens, um, you have all this writing in the United States about warning about degenerate art uh, from Europe. And there was, there was a lot of anxiety about, you know, this would be some kind of civilization destroying. Uh, well, did the did the quote unquote reactionary political movements of the thirties, the Limburgs, the isolationists, did they catch on to this? Did they associate the work of somebody like Picasso as a form of degeneracy, culturally, politically, intellectually? It. it, it, it. It, it, it's kind of a great, it, it's shifting all the time in those, in those years, in the, in the late 30s. And there is, I mean, if you look sort of officially, you do have kind of this shift at the end of the 30s where, you know, Roosevelt is finally, you know, the, the, the administration that supported this kind of American tradition is also getting behind uh, European modernism. But, but it's a very tenuous hold even then. And there's this, this moment when Barr, um, he's offered this group of German expressionist paintings. These are the very paintings that Hitler has, has purged from German museums. And there's this traveling show. And he turns it down uh, because he says he doesn't think the art is good enough. And he's like, some people looking at this, they might think that uh, Hitler was right. 
<laughs> um, so he's he's hyper aware. He didn't of, really say that, did he, Hugh? I mean, not literally. Yeah, no, no, he really did. But I, I guess this was before the Holocaust. So. I, yeah, yeah. This is. I mean, this is. He's not referring to the Holocaust. He's referring to, to Hitler's or, or, What about uh, what about American artists? I was just at the uh, Ansel Adams uh, exhibit, wonderful exhibit at, uh, in San Francisco. When one thinks of American artists, photographers, cinematographers, many of them were uh, emigres anyway from, from Germany or from Europe. Uh, I mean, Anson, uh, Adams, of course, wasn't. Uh, what was the reaction amongst uh, American avant-garde creative artists, photographers, filmmakers, writers to Picasso? Well, the 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 the, rea the the response is really interesting because you already have this debate going on in the twenties. I mean, in in art circles, there are the sort of the modernists and the Americanists, and they're and they're sort of battling it out. And you have people like Stuart Davis who are you know have you know have heavily interested in in what's happening in Europe, and then you know the the the, the Thomas Hart Bentons on the in the other camp saying you know we need to reject all of this Amer this kind of um, these these European influences, but in in the the kind of pivotal turning point with this big show, I mean, what is what one of the other key sort of thing about it is that it it can travel. You know, it's not like an exhibition that was shown in New York and then it shut. It it traveled all over the country, and because of the war, it it, it ne you know the, all those loans in the show never had to go back because they couldn't go back. Oh, um, we're stuck in the United States. So, so this show, went, you know, lasted for almost the entire war. Incredible. So, where, where, where was it mostly? Was it always on show? It, well, well, it was frequently on show. There were three different tours. You know, it went to like something like two dozen uh, American cities. I mean, name a city that it didn't go. It, it, there were there were also requests from you know Toronto and. Uh, um, it didn't ultimately go to Canada, but it did go to Mexico, which is astonishing. Mexico City um, in, in, in 1944. Uh, well, there would have been more sensitivity there, given that it's a piece of work about the Spanish Civil War. The, Guernica did not go to Mexico City, but, but parts, oh. parts of the show. That, that, uh, there were sort of different iterations depending on what material um, could, could travel. And um, so, no, I mean, it, it's, it's an astonishing story. And again, it's contingency. Because of the war, the art has to keep on tour. And, be, and because of the tour, it had this national reaction rather than just, you know, New York and Chicago, which was the original plan. So, you know, people in New Orleans saw it. People in uh, Portland saw it. Anyone in St. Paul? You're talking to me from St. Paul. Did it show up in Minnesota? Yes, yes. Minneapolis um, in the winter of 1941. And there's there's a great series of in the in the kind of museum magazine that, that their museum members got for, for like three months in preparation. They, they had all of these sort of don't be scared of Picasso uh, articles kind of preparing viewers for this this shocking event. Um, so um, yeah, literally hundreds of thousands of people from all parts of the country uh, took in this show. And I think that that really was, uh, had a catalytic effect that, that wouldn't have been, been possible, including artists, you know, um, you know um, 
I, I, I would have to double check this, but I think like Roy Lichtenstein saw it in, in Chicago, you know, people like um, um, Pollock and, and uh, Louise Bourgeois saw it in New York and, you know, other people saw it in California. It was just, um, um, it was catalytic in a way that few, few shows arguably could be just sheerly by geography. The, the subtitle of the book is How Modern Art Came to America, rather than How Pablo, uh, Pablo Picasso Came to America. He, of course, is an enormously controversial figure. He's been, he's had a number of lives in America in terms of his reputation and particularly his, his behavior towards women. Was there any interest in Picasso himself when this modern art came to America or was he just seen as some sort of weird European artist? Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that, that you're right, you see more, more and more controversial by the year, but the, the, the interest itself doesn't seem to wane. Um, it's interesting. It's as if we're back to the beginning where he's become almost as controversial as he was when he first, uh, when, his, when his work was... Right, his, he, he, he's become the controversy rather than his work. Right. Rather, than the, rather than the art, which is not so perplexing and is, is so ubiquitous that... Um, um, but... Uh, on a side note, I, I mean, one of the interesting things about the stories are the, the that there were important both Barr's wife, Marga, and uh, the the sort of collector who's in the first part of the story, uh, uh, John Quinn, had uh, this brilliant companion named uh, Jean Foster, and these two women were as much involved as 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 the men in in this story and and in in the, in the story of the Museum of Modern Art it really is women who are ahead of the game you know the the conservative forces in New York are the 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 kind of financier class who are all the these sort of male collectors and it's actually the women you know Abby Rockefeller has to hide her her matisses in the nursery of the seven seven story Rockefeller mansion because, um, you know, John D. Rockefeller Jr., you know, he couldn't stand to look at modern art. Um, so there's, there is actually this very interesting counterpoint to this narrative that, uh, of, 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 of misogyny, which is that it's, it's really women that, that are, are a part of the sort of first broad um, group of appreciators of, of this art. But um, uh, I'm sorry, I've strayed from your, your question. Um, well, it's good to stray from my questions. <laughs> the more you stray, the better you become, Hugh. Let's end by going back to the beginning, um, to American art. I, I noted uh, the slip, uh, Prudence Pfeiffer's book about American modern art after the Second World War, the New York Street that changed American art forever. What happened? With, yeah, in terms, you, you know, you say that Picasso or his work changed American art. Did he invent modern art? As were all these young people just go artists going to this thing, think, "Wow, this is incredible! I need to get back and reinvent myself as an artist." Well, I mean, the, 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 there is a real sense that once once you've sort of absorbed his work, there was no going back. You know? Right. There was no more before Picasso after you yeah. 
process. So, so all of these artists had to take account of it in some way. And they say that, you, they, they say that themselves, you know, there's this great um, uh, um, anecdote uh, Lee Krasner says about Jackson Pollock um, um, that, you know, at some point <laughs> he, 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 he's sitting in his studio and he's flipping through the catalog of the 1939 Picasso show. And he says, God damn it. And he throws the book across the room um, and says something like that, that guy thought of everything. Um, mm. So he's reacting as well. And I think it's not so much that there's influence that everybody wants to be Picasso, but that there's a sense of, of, of this is a, a, a jolt that, cannot be yes yeah, so it's like a major cult it's like i don't know listening to the white album or yeah some other major i mean probably a bigger deal than listening to the white album but uh some sort of major cultural event you can't go back so ironically are you suggesting that even if america was a bit behind a bit provincial a bit reactionary in the 30s Picasso actually did make America in an odd way the leader because after the Second World War, America did pioneer much modern art, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's 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 the irony of the whole thing. You know, here's Picasso never, 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 never visits the United States in his entire career, you know, ends up a communist in, in um, and he's this kind of larger than life figure that 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 flips the American art world. And, you know, after the war, where are all the great Picassos? Well, they're all in the United States in American museums. Um, and where is the art world? It's in the United States. Where are the big dealers who ran the world in Paris before the war? They're all in New York. And, uh, you know, so it's this amazing kind of story that that he's at the center of, but but also, you know, <laughs> in a way indifferent too, it, it, it's sort of fascinating that, you know, he never, you know, um, he, he kind of orchestrates this and yet, um, you know, he's, he's the missing figure uh, in the whole thing. Yeah, I sense with you a, a, a little bit of ambivalence and maybe even a nostalgia for the time before Picasso brought the modern art world to America. Okay. <laughs> Well, it depends. It depends which aspect of the modern art. Well, world. all the hype and the nonsense and the money and the, uh, and the and the hypocrisy. <laughs> I mean, especially given the nature of art, which is supposed to expose all that stuff. I mean, it's really fascinating. You go back to that very first show, so the first Picasso show in the United States, 1911, was actually astonishingly early. That so there was this opportunity, you know. Um, in this tiny gallery in New York, and it's just drawings, no paintings, because they couldn't, you know, there was no money in, in, in modern art at the time. So this you know, tiny gallery is bringing over a group of cubist drawings. Um, and one of the figures in my book, you know, important, ultimately a great Picasso collector, this is his first encounter with Picasso. And he says, you know, you can, when you look at Picasso, you, you, you see he doesn't care what the public thinks. Uh, he just has no interest at all. Um, and there was this sense of that sort of unbridled um, kind of unleashed radicalism that, the, you know, they, they did what they wanted and it wasn't market driven. Um, uh, and of course, <laughs> that, that, that may, may not have been the Picasso of 1950, um, but it's interesting that, that modern 
art in itself kind of became its own demise in terms of at least the the the, the kind of the the underlying uh, kind of heroic values that 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 started it off. It's become almost like elevator music. Is there <laughs> any original art left here, or do we have to look in other fields? Is that done that space? It's. I mean, it's 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 pretty hard. I have to say, it's pretty hard. Um, um, I mean, I think we're 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 in an age also of rediscovery. And I mean, one of the great things is there's always some really great work, even recent modern work, you know, that, that, you know, nobody appreciated and that suddenly um, can be, can be recovered. I think the, 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 the very contemporary moment that we're in is a very strange one. I mean, you have a tiny group of artists who are, you know, val with these kind of valuations that are like, um, you know, like the Chinese day market or something. <laughs> Um, with no bearing, I mean, it's in no relationship to kind of aesthetic quality. It's 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 a it's a kind of it's a it, it's become a, a a market in itself. I mean, uh, speculative mania like NFTs. Yeah. So, um, but as as far as elevator music goes, I mean, it's pretty good music. I I I. I, I <laughs> 